Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem for our evening Bible study. We are in the book of Leviticus, up to chapter 16, which has the title, The Day of the Atonement. So lots here to wrestle with. But before we do, we really need to acknowledge that um, as mere mortals, in the presence of God and holding on to the word of God, we need God to help us understand. And when we understand, give us the courage to put it into practice. So, Brother Neville, um, would you bless us by prayer as we begin our study? Yes. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come before your word. Father, help us to see the things that you have written there for our benefit. Father, pray that you would reveal things to us by your Holy Spirit and also inspire Aaron's words as he, as he expounds the passage. Father, we rely on you to lead us into all truth, as you promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, friends, we are going to, as is our tradition, uh, go over the, the background from last week, just to keep everything in context and to give a summary of our discussion. And for those that are listening in podcast, you should be able to see the, uh, the notes yeah, for download. They're also now included in the chat. So Leviticus 15 was what we wrestled with last week. So in summary, it can be difficult as modern readers and students of the Bible to understand the ancient taboos regarding sexuality and religion. In many of the cultures of antiquity around Israel, sex had a large role in cultic worship. For the people of God, this was not to be so. There was to be a separation of sexuality and the worship of God. Now, this is not to say that intimate relations between husbands and wives is inherently evil or sinful, because it is not. It was the command of the Lord to Adam and Eve in the garden to multiply and fill the earth prior to the fall. Intimacy is not a result of the fall, but it is an instruction prior to it. So in this chapter, Moses separates. He separates sexuality into bodily discharges and ritual purity of the tabernacle. Humans are made in the image of God. Our bodies are essentially sacred, and we have been called to be holy. Even the very name of this book, Vayikra, and he called, is a, is a, is a key to this. Because of the sacredness of the human body, and its potential for the creation of life, it was not possible to come into the presence of God, who is the ultimate source of life, without a ritual cleansing. Intimacy was to remain in your own private dwelling and was not to be performed before the Lord. Many things caused the Israelites to be in a state of ritual uncleanness, such as touching dead things, going to war, contracting a disease, and intimacy with your spouse, to name a few. Uncleanness is not a state of sin. Conversely, 
holiness is also not inherently a state of sinlessness, although they are very closely related. The uncleanness from skin diseases meant separation from the community, which is what we discussed for a couple of chapters there. However, the uncleanness that is associated with bodily discharges does not require exclusion, only quarantine. Uncleanness can be transferred, with Moses describing that people, clothing, objects such as chairs, beds, and cutlery can become unclean through contact with the person who has an unusually bodily discharge. Should the discharge stop and the person be deemed clean, then a seven-day ritual ceremony is begun, ending on the eighth day with ritual baptism, uh, washing, and the sacrifice of birds. Now, once again, we note that the ritual ceremony occurs after being cleansed. It is not the magical formula that makes one clean. The priest prepares the sacrifice as a sin offering and a burnt offering, and he pronounces atonement before the Lord for the cleansed person. We note again that atonement is pronounced, not forgiveness, as there is a difference between those two concepts. Differentiating between pure and unclean has been the topic of four chapters now, between 12 and 15. Purity is important to the Lord. In verse 31, perhaps this gives us the reason. In this verse, God instructs Moses to keep the Israelites separate from uncleanness. Why? So that they will not die for defiling his sanctuary. Failing to acknowledge and deal with impurity results in a disregard for the holiness of God and a potential death. What type of death is implied? Well, it could be a physical one, such as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira in uh, Acts 5, or it could be a spiritual death, as in the case of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. Now, the early Jesus movement, what we also call early Christianity, struggled with sexual immorality in the Gentile culture. Acts 15 noted four laws for Gentiles, including the prohibition against fornication. In Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, he describes how immorality defiled the body, something that was sacred, that had now become unclean, and the prescription was exclusion from the community. Uncleanness and immorality is contagious. Now, in our modern culture of unrestrained sexual promiscuity, it is a challenge for the people of God to remain holy and pure. And we have a responsibility to educate our children in appropriate and pure attitudes to intimacy. This will not be done by the secular education system, which knows no distinction between the sacred and the profane. So for the last couple of weeks, we were told by Moses, by God through Moses, to distinguish between sacred and profane. And as we've done, becoming clean, we go through atonement, and it leads to today's chapter, which gives the heading, the Day of Atonement. So chapter 16, brothers and sisters. So chapter 16, I'm reading from an ESV. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and then they died. And the Lord said to Moses, Now tell Aaron, your brother, 
not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a, for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist. He shall wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and he'll put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And then he shall take the two goats and he shall set before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and he'll use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. And he'll put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with, it, with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement for it in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat. He'll put it on the horns of the altar all around and he'll sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times. You'll cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and, and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. And he'll confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions, all of their sins. And you shall put them on the head of the goat. You'll send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. 
and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and you'll take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and you shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and you'll put on his garments and come out, and he'll offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goats go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he can come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he can come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. And on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sin. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. And you shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. You shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And you shall make atonement for you that the atonement will be made for the people of Israel. Oh, this shall be a statute together for you and the atonement will be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, there is a lot there. Okay, so based on a literal reading, just the the shut, the, the, the literal text. Brothers and sisters, what's there that jumps out at this passage? What's some of the questions we might need to wrestle with uh, in our study? I have an observation. One, one thing that, that strikes me as interesting when it comes to the fore in the latter part of the passage is that the people of Israel do nothing. They just, they abstain, so they fast, but they're actually not doing anything. So it's staying at home, keeping a low profile, and all the work is done by the priest and his helper. Yes, based on a literal reading of the text, the guy who's at the edge of the camp, who doesn't see any of this going on, nothing is required of him except to fast or deny himself. And all of the work is done inside a tabernacle in, by a priesthood whom he most likely will never see, which is very interesting. Okay. And, Kate, you mentioned there's a live goat. Who or live what goat is sent this? to the wilderness. Yeah. Live goat sent to, sent to who? Exactly. Because in, it's, is it a place or in the Dead Sea Scrolls it's a demon? So. Well, yes, the wilderness is a euphemism for where the, where the devils live. I'm reading from the ESV, which is a modern version. Now, most modern versions, most, now use the word send the goat to Azazel, which is actually what the Hebrew says. The most translations prior to our modern translation will say send the goat to the wilderness. Which was a correct translation, actually, sort of. Yeah, so then the question is, who or what is this thing, Azazel? And we'll get to that. So that's a good question. 
Who or what is Azazel? Why do we send him a, a live goat? Thank God you have an Azazel expert here in this meeting. Yes, we're going to, uh, yeah, we're going to ask her. Mordecai is going to give us uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, history and discussion on who or what is Azazel. But something also interesting is that uh, they had a temple. And um, so they were basically detoxing the temple. And how it's interesting how Yom Kippur has taken another, it's, 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 it's morphed into something else. There's no temple now. So it's now for personal sin or whatever, or, or communal sin. It's a sin thing. But at the time, it, a lot of it, when um, in Leviticus at the time, it's really this concept of detoxing the temple. That's right. There's no blood applied to, to the children of Israel like you had uh, at Mount Sinai and, and I think another place. So it's now with no temple, it's kind of morphed into something that it maybe had not been previous when it had been originated. Yeah, we can ask um, some, some Jewish people like Mordecai, what do, what do you guys do for Yom Kippur now? Because obviously the Yom Kippur ritual, which is being um, listed here, and, le and let's admit in chapter 16, guess what is not mentioned? Yom Kippur. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's the, the word Yom Kippur does not actually appear here. It's going to be later on five, six chapters. Yeah, that's correct. It, it'll show up in Leviticus 23, but it does give you the date. So you, can, you know it's Yom Kippur because it, it gives you the actual physical date in the text, but, but it doesn't actually call it uh, Yom Kippur. And as we will mention coming up in chapter 23 of Leviticus, it's in the plural. It's not Yom Kippur, it's Yom HaKippurim. Yeah. Okay? It's actually Day of the Atonements. And as we read in this chapter, there's a chunk of things being atoned constantly. Like you see the number of times that our poor priest has to atone for himself all the time, and he's got to even change clothing, and he's got to do stuff again, and, uh, which is uh, very, very interesting. For himself, his household, and then for the whole community, eh? And the yeah. staple is such a cool picture, eh? How do we know what um, afflict means? How do we know that means fasting? Um, my translation here says the people are to humble themselves. Okay. How do we know that that means that to fast? Is that inherent in that? Um, I, I don't know if it's inherent in the actual text, but it's definitely a tradition. Um, Mordecai, it's... Uh, any ideas on that one? Well, it's, it comes from the oral Torah that you have to fast. And we also dress up in white clothing. You know, we go to the shul. That's the longest day. You know, you just go pray, pray, pray. There are special prayer books for the Yom Kippur. It's a very long day that you spend it uh, in a synagogue. Uh, because we don't have a temple. So you basically go to your local shul and follow the praying order. Yep. It takes hours. Yeah, and back here in this at this exact time, they had the tabernacle, right, Mari? Not the temple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. So just just to make a connection between the sermon that I preached on Sunday, um, the we were discussing uh, the reading in Isaiah six, holy, 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 unto the Lord, and kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. This 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 three um, times a word appears, which is incredibly rare. In Hebrew, usually words will occur once or twice, twice if you're trying to make a, um, a serious point, okay? Um, 
but uh, kadosh, 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 when you say a word three times, holy, 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 it's only ever in reference to God. And it appears in our liturgies. It also appears in our, uh, this is my little prayer book for Yom Kippur, as Mordecai was saying. You have a special prayer book for it. And um, it includes normally on a normal day, you have three prayers, but on Yom Kippur, you have five. You have two additional prayers. One of those is called the Musaf, the additional prayer. And it uses the words Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. It's part of its liturgy. And uh, what I really like about this prayer book is um, when you get to that time for prayer, Kadosh, 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 and you say, Lord, you are holy, 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 there's a little asterisk. And the little asterisk has a little footnote saying, if you would like to actually pray the rest of the Kadosh, 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 please go to the end of the prayer book. You're all the way to the end of the prayer book. And you end up with this page, which um, then describes, then goes into Psalm 72, which is incredibly messianic, and Isaiah 53. Um, which is, and so on Yom Kippur, you will actually pray uh, the, the, the Isaiah 53 and you'll pray various messianic psalms. Once you've actually mentioned the words, Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. So it describes how um, Jewish people take liturgy quite seriously and how that then can feed into um, various pieces of theology, which is uh, really quite good. Okay, so anything else that jumps out literally? Otherwise, we'll go into the um, discussion of the text. Uh, one small observation from, from verse 13 is that the incense, the cloud of incense from the altar um, is there actually for Aaron's benefit. So, so it, it partly obscures his sight of the mercy seat uh, and therefore that's for uh, his protection. Yeah. And do you remember where this incense is created, uh, where it initially gets described then? As in, well, is, is it coming from the other side of the veil? Is that from the yeah. altar of incense? Yes, the altar of incense comes from uh, the book of Exodus when we're describing um, how you make uh, a, a certain smell to the Lord. And God says, this is my smell. Yeah. Just for me. You can't have it. And as Neville was saying, but there's an, actually an element where it is also is kind of for you, Aaron, because when you come in using this smell, which is just for me, it's going to also help cover and shield you. And it will come inside the veil. That was the... Yeah, the priest will bring it into the, into the, into the veil uh, uh, only once a year. And this, this um, actually in our Parashat Shavuah, the, the Torah portion for the week, um, if anyone is following, it's uh, Exodus... 27 to 30, I think. Um, I think that's the, the right one. And it describes um, a lot of the elements. It's the Exodus 29. 29, yep. And it describes the things that are inside the, the Mishkan. And that includes the, the eternal flame, the menorah, which, of course, begs the question, why does God need light? God is light. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the big theological question. If God is light, what exactly does he need light for? Does he, can he not see in the dark? Um, and Maybe we can't see him in dark. Yes. Not for him. It's for them, no? 
Right. So then, then it turns around, and so Jewish commentaries will turn around and say, well, of course God doesn't need light. The light isn't meant for inside the tabernacle. The light is meant to shine outside the tabernacle. And that brings up a lot of the traditions, which I think Mordecai described once when you were describing how the temple was created, that the windows of the temple were shaped in such a way so that the light radiated outwards. Yeah. The whole point was we're meant to be a light to the nations. We're meant to actually take the light of God. It's not meant to be something internal. It's not meant to be designed where you just sit around and hold a candle to God and go, look, you know, aren't yeah. you fantastic? But rather to turn around and say to the world, look at how good God is. Look, shine your light out and say, come and see the, uh, the light of the world. And, I, and there's an interesting midrash which says, a Jewish commentary on, on light, where they say, if you're standing in darkness, you can see things in light. You can look at the light and you can see what's there. If you're standing in the light, you can't see what's in the darkness because the light just, just, just hides you. But God, God can still see things both in the light and in the dark, so you can't hide from him. But the, the point is by saying that people who are in darkness, people who are struggling and they really want hope and salvation and light can look at light and they can actually see the truth. But when you're in the truth, then it's harder to turn around and see what the enemy's got. Because he's got nothing. That reminds me of in Isaiah, especially as the Gentiles, right? When the light came to the darkness. and uh, Yes. Yeah. The, the arise, shine for your light has come. Very next sentence. But darkness covers the face of the people. And you go, well, then where'd the light come from? Um, yeah, we are, we are the torchbearers. We, we are the light. We are the light. One more thing on the literal reading. Yep. Uh, the size or the value of the sacrifice made for all the people seem to be smaller than the sacrifice made for the priest. The priest brings a bull and there's a goat or two goats for all the people. Just didn't seem to match up somehow. Excellent. Isn't that interesting? Bull for Aaron and his household, two goats of uh, which are lesser in value, and one which you kill to make atonement, correct? Correct. So then why do you need to put the sins of Israel on top of the other one? Haven't you dealt with them already? Very good question. Yeah, it's a, it is an interesting question. It's one of those things where you go, oh, um, and, we, and we try and, find, and superimpose our theology on the text. But when you actually read it, you go, hang on, how many times are we dealing with sin here? You, we're dealing with sin again and again and again and again. And what do we really mean? by putting our sins on a goat, a live one, and sending them to a place or a, or a person or both, um, which we will, we will come to. And, and also in verse 27, the bull for the offering is taken, is carried outside the camp, and there they burn the fire and the skins and the flesh, and they're awful. And the person who burned that has to cleanse himself before they come back in. So they're actually removing something else outside. Yes, there's a few things that, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of movement and it's incredibly complicated. And, um, uh, and, and, and I guess this is probably one of the reasons why Jesus comes at Passover because they've only got one sacrifice at Passover. It's a lot easier to figure out which one, right? Um, in, the, in, in, in Corinthians, we get from the epistle of Paul, it'll say, that uh, the Messiah became our sin offering. 
And you go, great. And, and, and many commentaries link that to Yom Kippur, except that sin offerings occurred way long before Yom Kippur. Yeah, lots and lots of sin offerings. And uh, here you have multiple sin offerings. And even after having a sin offering, one that dies, you have another one for one that lives. You go, now what is going on with that one? So let's wrestle with it. Let's, let's see what this ritual and all of its meanings has uh, for us, the people of God. I think the scapegoat is like a picture of our sins going away from us, you know? Correct. Like, like, bye-bye. Correct. At the same time, you've already dealt with your sin by killing something. Yes. At the same time, remember, we've got two goats, and both of them involve, involve sin. Otherwise, if the goat is dying for no reason at all, well, I'm sure he's very upset. Um, uh, you know, oh, well, my death was worth nothing. Well, that's not what the text says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's what the goat thought. Okay. Um, okay. Well, is 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 the is the live goat one that's I mean been de- well, I'll say domesticated or at least living in the uh, the community. To, he's he's not rounded up from the wilderness, and, and eventually he's he's going to die too. He just has a bit of a prolongation of his. Um, I mean, he's he's de- definitely separated. He's he's going where where goats don't normally live, probably. Yeah. And so there's this kind of um, sense that, yeah, go ahead, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the God, the God probably fell down. Yeah. Yes, there is a, there is a tradition where they actually um, push goats off cliffs. But, but that's the, so they, we'll, we'll, we'll handle some of the traditions and we'll also just handle with what the, the text is. All right, guys. I'll start reading uh, the actual text uh, line by line and um, see how far we get. Um, Azazel's coming up first. So the Lord speak. So the Lord spoke to Moses. So what do we note immediately different there? We've, we we stop talking to Moses and Aaron, even though Aaron's going to have a fair bit to play in this text. Yet the Lord, for whatever reason does not actually speak to him first. He will speak to Moses, which by this stage, now we've separated offices. Aaron is priest. Moses is prophet. So prophet speaks to priest. Lord speaks to Moses and says, speak to Aaron and his sons, so a dynasty, and to all the people of Israel, everyone's included, and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb. Oh, sorry, I'm wrong chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Okay. So, and when they drew near before the Lord and died. So we get a, a, an event that goes on. So why do we think we have to speak after this? The, the sons of Aaron. God speaks after the death of the sons of Aaron. Why? It's a reminder. It's a reminder for them not to go inappropriately. It's like, be careful. It didn't work out one way. Be careful with how you're going to approach this, so it doesn't happen to you as well. Okay. So there's a there's a warning on the inappropriate uh, entrance into the Lord's presence. Okay. I, I think that the result of the the death of his two sons is really going to focus his mind, Aaron's mind, on 
listening to the words emerges and actually getting it right in every single detail. I mean, you know, two, two of his four sons just died by making presumptuous requests and so on, Leviticus 10. So I think he's, he's going to be listening really carefully. Indeed. You better listen very carefully, yeah. It's very interesting to note that the, the death occurred 10 chapters earlier, and um, we've been reminded about it just in the 16th chapter when um, God has uh, spoken a lot in between the death and um, these events, and um, it's 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 sound. It, it looks a bit strange that um, it's after the death in chapter ten. He didn't just deal with the issue after the death of um, his two sons. Left so much to talk. Then he finally says Akaremot after the death of the sons. Yeah, just to point that out. It's a good point, and um, actually, a lot of commentaries in the in the uh, Jewish world also make this 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 comment. They say this is, um, you know, chapter 10 is when the sons of Aaron die. And then it took a long time, lots of laws, lots of discussions, particularly between discerning between uh, sacred and profane. And at the end of that discussion on let's distinguish between sacred and profane, you get the reintroduction of and remember. Remember what happened when we didn't distinguish between sacred and profane. Aaron, you remember. And so now don't, don't do this. These are the times when you're actually allowed to come into my presence. Um, verse two is that the Lord continues to speak to Moses. He says, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Now, my translation, he says, before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Does anybody have a different translation at all for mercy seat? Or is it everybody's translation mercy seat? Yeah. No. Mine gives it this way. Okay. So the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come at will into the shrine behind the curtain in front of the cover that is upon the ark, lest he die for I appear in the cloud over the cover. Yeah. Which, which translation do you have, Shimshan? JPS. Um, Jewish publication, um, it's called JPS. I can't remember all the acronyms, yeah, but it's a Jewish publication. And it's, re- and it's actually reflecting the, um, the more literal meaning of the Hebrew there. Because um, uh, tell, your, tell your brother Aaron, don't come any time into the holy place, okay, the, the, the special place, which is inside the veil, the parochet, the curtain. That is before and... Uh, Obviously, um, the my translation has mercy seat, as in most English translations, Christ, uh, earlier ones. Mine says Aaron atonement cover. Yes, because that's actually what the Hebrew says. Um, the the a, a lot of our English theology is we took this word, the uh, the um, kaporet, and um, and we turned it into this word mercy seat, which is actually comes from the Greek. That's not what the Hebrew says. Okay? Um, there's a, the, it, we, we often think of the Ark of the Covenant um, in terms of mercy, whereas the Ark of the Covenant is written in Hebrew in terms of covering, atonement. That's why we have this kaporot, you know. 
that's it. Yes, we call it the couple rod, the swinging of the the chicken around your head. And um, <laughs> so, so I just wanted to I just wanted to mention to for anybody who's listening in uh, podcast land that our sometimes our translations come with a certain bias, and we 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 get our theology and we take our theology and we reinterpret things inside the text and we probably shouldn't do that we should let the text give us theology then we should embrace it wrestle with it and and carry it forward mercy seat isn't is, is not a good translation here really atonement cover uh or the place of the covering just a quick clarification are you saying that the septuagint translated this as mercy seat in Greek? Uh, i'm not 100 sure where they got it but um they, if they, the Greek of the of the 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 Hebrew, which would be a would be a, a Septuagint. I haven't checked what the Septuagint is, and I will for the notes. But it doesn't seem to the mercy seat, which in Hebrew is rechem, doesn't fit what the word kapara means. So I'm not 100 percent sure why the translations run with mercy seat, other than the idea that blood blood gave mercy as opposed to blood gives a covering. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the Hebrew rep- is, a, is, a, is a very different, different word, but that's a very good question. So let's check Septuagint. Um, I'll do that uh, tomorrow and see where we go. All right. And the Lord is going to appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. Does that mean he wasn't there before? or he only appears when Moshe enters, or where is the cloud normally in the wilderness? Above the tabernacle, the cloud of fire by night and Correct. cloud by day. Yes. So it's, it's currently, there's, a, there's an interesting question that appears in Jewish commentaries that say, hang on, we have this cloud that guides us, we have the cloud that's above the tabernacle, so why all of a sudden does um, God need to suddenly shrink himself into this, into this um, holy place? Does he actually live there? And what would be the answer? No. Well, no. no. So what's he actually doing then? Communicating. Yeah. Sending. Yes. He's meeting somebody who's entering into his presence, which is a, which is a, um, a very nice thought, you know, that uh, the high priest is going to show up once a year and when he comes in, God will meet him. And that's a nice thought. As opposed to God's always here and only once a year you get to show up um, because God is also a whole bunch of other places doing a whole bunch of other things. But on the day that you need to go and meet him, God will indeed come and meet you. Also the sense that God is now dwelling among them because initially he said to Moses he wasn't going to go with him into the wilderness. He changes his mind. They build a tabernacle for him to come and dwell in, and now he's living in, in their neighborhood. Like he's hovering over them, guys? It's like he's like the cloud is kind of hovering over and protecting them, that kind of thing. The, the, the cloud was visible from the camp, from anywhere in the camp, is essentially the, the point. How we describe it and what sort of art we might use not 100% sure, other than it was a, a visible thing. And then in the Holy of Holies, uh, God says, on this day, I will appear in the cloud, okay, over, over the kapora, over the, the, um, the, the seat of, of atonement, which is uh, 
That doesn't mean that he's always living there because he's been visible everywhere else. So in this way, in this way, Aaron will come into the holy place. And he'll do it, as we've just, uh, as uh, Andrew pointed out, with a bull first, which will be taken from the herd of a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he has to bring two offerings. And um, when I was having a discussion with Mordecai about this, he pointed something out. Where does Moshe, uh, where does Aaron get this cow from? Any ideas? Does he get to just walk out into the field and say, hey, who owns that cow over there? I'm thinking of killing it uh, for my sins and for my household, by the way. Um, Mordecai, you want to enlighten us on where does Aaron have to get his cow from? Well, he buys everything from the, the tabernacle's treasury with his own money, basically. Okay, he has to use his own money. Yeah. Okay, he can't just abscond it. He can't say, hey, you know, I happen to be um, a big shot and uh, kind of got this really once a, once a year thing to do. So um, I'm, I'm taking your cow. And the guy goes, well, I, I was going to use it for, for dairy. Not today, son. Um, no, in, in this case, the, the oral tradition is Aaron has to pay for this himself. And also some other things from he, that he needs to buy from the uh, tabernacle's treasury, such as the clothing, blah, blah, with his own money. Where did he get his own money? Who knows? Maybe someone gave him. No, because he's a Kohen people, you know, he gets, well, anyway. Okay, so we have two. From the carbonot. Yes. So he pays, he pays for a bull and he pays for a ram. He has to pay for two, two things. Okay. And, he, and then he's got to put on a special type of clothing. Now, what is he normally wearing? Normal high priest clothing. Yep. And it looks pretty good. He's, he looks the best out of all of the guys. He's got all kinds of things. They're all kind of very nice colors. He's also wearing the Urim and Thummim. He's wearing the ephod. He's got all kinds of stuff. He's got to take all that off. So on this day, he's got to get dressed in very simple clothing. He's got to get dressed in the humblest of clothing, very simple linen. He puts on a linen coat, linen underwear, and a linen sash and a turban. And we still call these very humble things, holy garments. Okay? So he, he, he dresses up himself in a very humble way. He bathes himself. He has, a, he has a mikveh. He has a ritual baptism. And then he takes from the congregation of the people two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So now we've got another bunch. We're going to go up to like six offerings by this stage. Ah, Shimshon, you've got a hand raised. I just, just saw. Yes, thank you, Aaron. Um, just um, sorry to take us a bit back on the issue of the the mercy seat. Okay. We realize that in um, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews used a term to describe it, call it the throne of grace. Say, so let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Was describing the entrance of the high priest into the holies of holies in that aspect, and so. I'm sure that what's, um, I don't know what is in the Greek, but I'm sure that's what should have, what might have um, uh, made the invention of the mercy seat, you know, um, oh, nice. because that's where we make up in time of need. What's the, what's the reference in Hebrews? Just, just so for my notes. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16. Thank you. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 16. 
Excellent. Then, the, then also the modesty of the sorry, the, the modesty of the priest of the high priest on that great day is uh, is very very telling, and you see it just comes some, to something very very simple, so that he he will be able to pass through the veil, because many times we talk about passing the veil, but we don't know how the priest enters the veil, whether he takes it up and bends under it. Or of course we know it is not um, it is not partitioned so that you can open it and you know walk through it. So it is assumed that the priest has to be very simple so he can pass through the veil because that's the term we usually use when you say the priest is going through the veil and he has to be at one with God to be able to pass through the veil. Um, we see that with. Um, in the book of Zacharias, when Zacharias was talking about the high priest Joshua, um, he was wearing a filthy garment, and that filthy garment was taken, and a, um, a linen garment, like the, what the high priest will wear, was given to him. And um, in, in that, in that um, expression, then also he says that the Lord said that if you, 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 I will give you permission to move among these ones, you know, referring to the angels that were there and we know that angels are carved into the um the curtain the caporet the angels are carved into the curtain so i'll give you access before this once and uh, that works in the presence of god yes that's what i wanted to add excellent thank you very much so a bunch of things for me to, to check out there so our our um, our hero has now put on very humble clothing and he's take and he's got a, a bull and a ram for himself and his household and then he takes some goats too and a, and a ram for a burnt offering. So what is the purpose of this, of Yom Kippur? Why is he doing all this? What's it to achieve? An offering, a cleansing of the himself, the household and the community. A reset, an annual reset. An annual reset, okay. A purification of the whole community. Purification of the whole community of Israel. Okay. And, and as Neville mentioned at the start, what does the community have to do? Nothing. Right. As Mordecai, nothing. What an interesting thing to say. And so what do you think Jewish commentaries say about that? If, you, if you've got nothing, you have to look to see why there's nothing. So it immediately draws your attention. To yeah. the fact that they're doing nothing. It's that tension. Remember, just, just like in the last couple of chapters, remember, literally the text describing um, skin disease, it literally talked about it as bio biology. It was biological. No mention of the word sin at all. Yet Jewish commentaries all talked about it as a form of sin. This is resulting because of something that's been, been done spiritually. But it was a sin offering too, though, at the time, though, Aaron. Yeah, a sin offering is for unintentional sin. This was, but the sin that they were talking about in the commentaries was always Lashon Hara, which is, which is not um, unintentional. So which is very interesting. It's very interesting that this is the way people would look. The, the literal text doesn't mention sin. The commentary does. Now, the literal text says that people don't have to do anything, right? That's what it literally says. However, what do the commentaries think that they say? They have to repent. Yeah. Thank you, Mordecai. Yes. The, the heart is not mentioned in this entire chapter. 
Yet, when you get into a Jewish commentary, they take it completely spiritual and they say, no, this has got to be all about the heart. You can't say, I will sin and I will, and I will do whatever I want because I know that once I get to Yom Kippur, that little priest over there, he's going to have some sacrifices for me and I'll be clean. And so Jewish commentaries have already had a look at the text and gone, hang on, got, got a problem here. And they, and they wrestle with the tension that's there and they say, actually, it's about your heart and it has to be about your heart. And you can't say, I will sin and Yom Kippur will save me. That's not the way grace or mercy works. Right, because it clarifies in verse 21, right? He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. So their heart's involved for sure in that verse. No, 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 no. Completely wrong, Sharon. Okay. Aaron does the, the confessing. Right. The guy, the guy who's sitting at the edge of the camp who doesn't hear Aaron, he doesn't see what he's doing. In fact, he has absolutely no idea what's going on because there's a million Israelites. There's absolutely no way he could actually see any of this ceremony whatsoever. And so Aaron does it all for him. Right, but it, how does he confess? Aaron, not the individual. I know. It's okay. What's the problem? Yeah, that, that's the point. That's the point, Sharon. The Jewish commentators are saying, why does that guy who does absolutely nothing, why does he get redeemed? And what they come up with is saying, no, actually, he is, he is doing something. He's actually, his heart's involved. His heart's involved. He can't see what's going on. He has never met Aaron. He may have never met Aaron in his life because there's just so darn many of them. And he could be the poorest of the poor. But he's involved in the process via his personal confession and repentance. Think also this. What happens to Daniel? Once we take the literalness of this text, that we don't have a temple, we don't have a high priest, and we can't offer sacrifices for sin, what does Daniel do? Daniel's been carted into captivity. He's, three times a day. he's still praying, but what's the point? Mm -hmm. He can't have Yom Kippur. What is the point? What's the point of doing anything if I've got no temple? And yet that never occurs to Daniel. That never occurs to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're, when, they're, when they're faced with death, bow down or die. Well, absolutely not. Well, what's the point? You can't offer sacrifices. You're toast. Why die now? Why not enjoy your life? So the Jewish people are looking at this text, which is literal. Remember, always remember the Peshat. We're never allowed to go against the Peshat. So there will also be this episode where a priest offers a sacrifice for you, which is a very interesting thought. And at the same time, taking a more spiritual side, where's, where's my attitude? Where do I fit into this? How, what, what's my obligation on Yom Kippur? So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's actually quite, sometimes I think, uh, you know, about Moses when he's writing this, you are a very smart man. Okay, you've um, you've really allowed the people coming after you to wrestle with the theology, and uh, you did great. So, Aaron, one other quick thought then. So then, in verse twenty-nine, so they're involved in the sense that you know, verse twenty-nine, uh, you know, they they do things. I mean, they're they have guidelines as well for the day too. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, they afflict themselves, do no work, uh, 
no mention there of repentance, no mention there of confession, no mention there. So you could be a murderer and you could fast for one day, do no work, and you're, you're safe. I, I bet a lot of murderers would rather do that than go to prison, I can tell you. <laughs> Sophia. Um, I know I came late into the conversation, but from what I'm understanding here, there's there's literally no mention of them. Wait, what is the point of this then? Right, that's, that's what we're discussing. If there's literally no mention of the heart, of anything that has to do with the heart, Correct. then what's the point of it? Is it just another sacrifice that they have to do? The Okay, the, the question really that it's supposed to be asked, Sophia, is that there's no mention of the heart. Why not? That's the actual question. The, you, you, don't, you don't follow through with a conclusion saying the heart's not important. What the next, the, the next segue is, well, obviously the heart's incredibly important. And, and so that, that is actually where you get your theology and your learning. But just a real quick response to that here, and I think, sorry to interrupt for one second, Shimshon, it's just because verse 30 does include and does explain how they're involved, though, right? So I know what you're saying is that they're not individually repenting. Ah, but there's- verse 30 is very interesting in and on its own right, still doesn't mention the heart or confession. It really doesn't. But it does mention something else. But we'll get to that, Sharon. Trust me, maybe not today. But, um, okay, Shimshon? All right, thank you. Um, I, I believe that um, the, the people's involvement has to do with the fasting. Okay. Um, they, they need to afflict themselves. In that way, they appropriate whatever the um, priest is doing for them. It's like applying their faith to what the priest is doing for them because at the end of the day, they believe that their sins have been taken care of. And okay. so whatever the priest is doing, we are connecting to it through our fasting and um, yes, we're not doing anything, but we are appropriating it. Um, that's, the, that's the term I can use to describe it. Just like what Yeshua does for us. Um, Yeshua died for us, but we appropriate what he has done for us for the, for, for the redemption of our souls. So I want to see it from that aspect that they are involved, but they are appropriating what the high priest is doing on their behalf. Because when you look at verse 30, it says, for on this day, atonement shall be done for you. Something is being done for them. So, um, yeah, so they, they kind of um, receive it by faith and by that action of fasting. Okay. Yes, and the rest of that verse, Aaron, goes on to say, then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. So it's clearly a, sin, a cleansing from sin for them as well. I'm, as not, I'm not saying it's not. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying, Sharon. What I'm saying is the actual involvement doesn't mention the heart. So it doesn't matter. You can fast. And you can still be a horrible person. You can just, I'm going to join in with whatever the priest is doing for me. I believe it. That's fine. I've just murdered my brother two days ago. Am I sorry for it? No. Am I fasting? Yes. Do I get forgiven? Literally, yes. And then can I go away and murder someone tomorrow? Because I haven't actually repented. Remember, this is part of our discussion. There's no mention of repentance, no mention of the heart. And Jewish commentaries, already pick up on this, and they track on two levels. They track one, which is the Peshat, which is the literal, that you have a high priest sacrificing and doing a work of grace for you without your participation, other than, as Shimshon said, joining in by appropriating it, 
through fasting and doing the work. Right. And on the other hand, if your heart's not involved, which is not mentioned in the text, it's irrelevant. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's kind of a given a little bit, right? No. If you're fat, you're giving something for God. So, so let's, let's just say this. Let's go the literal. I'm a murderer and, and I fast on the day. I decide to give up. I don't say I'm sorry for murdering. And, and Aaron sacrifices a bull. Am I forgiven? Have I gotten away with it? Who, who knows what you've done if you haven't said, I'm sorry I did that? No, no, God knows. The, 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 the point is, you know, I'm a murderer, right? And, 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 and the, the text has, is, is open. So you ha- the, the theology is in the discussion. That's why we're, they're wrestling with it right now. We're looking at these, at these gaps in the text and we're going, wow, this is very interesting. What is going on? And isn't it just where he's explaining all this now? So this is kind of like a new thing, is it? And so he's explaining, okay, like, you know, verse 34. Okay. No, we, we've, we've had sins before. We've had, we've had a, a plethora of sacrifices, particularly for unintentional sin, already in Leviticus and also even in previous texts. So we've got a tradition of going in and, um, and, and making confession, which is in previous Things, but not on this day. On this day, something different is happening. And on, in terms of your point for verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you. Fantastic. Atonement uh, to cleanse you, being clean. We've been spending a lot of time talking about sacred and profane, clean and unclean, etc. That's cleansing your heart. You, it doesn't say that. That's what you what you've just done is in it. What you've just done, Sharon, is an interpretation. Um, it's a good one. I'm going to agree with your interpretation. The text doesn't say that. Always remember, what does the text say? What is it with you guys that you want it to always say it? Because remember last week we're talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, and you're like saying, okay, because they didn't make out before the fall of man. Okay, so then it's like like it does. It, this is not like a step-by-step every second of every day, every little thing that happened. Like, why are you wanting it to say that all the time? Like when it, some stuff is obvious, no? Like it probably happened in the background. But If it was as obvious as we would all like, we, we probably wouldn't have as many denominations as we do. No, but I'm asking you, why are you, ma- why are you like assuming you can't see something in it if it's not every little thing written? Like I'm not understanding your logic there. The word of God. Go on, Rocky. When you want to look at the, 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 the Bible intellectually, you're trying to separate yourself from your theological view. And um, you look at the text and let the text speak for itself. Amen. And you don't read meaning into the text. Because, um, Sharon, what you're doing is to read meaning into the text. But when you want to take it on a Pashat level, you will take the text for its meaning. Yeah, what you're doing has a place. Um, that's when you want to do a Midrash. But... At this moment, what um, Aaron is trying to explain is that we are doing uh, a pashat. We are taking the meaning from the text, not giving meaning to the text. Right. So when it says in verse 30, you will be clean from all your sins, that's what it says. You couldn't get more pashat than that. Yeah, you'll be clean from your sins. But it, it, it didn't mention that, um, like Aaron said, it didn't mention that you, you, when you put your heart into it or when you believe it or anything. It didn't mention all those we are the one that can now build those interpretation into it. But the text didn't say that. It says you'll be cleansed from all your sins. You shall be cleansed before the Lord. And that's all. That's it. Correct. And, and, and going on the Peshat here, okay, what is interesting is you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. 
Now, again, think literally. Which sins are being cleansed? The ones before the Lord. Yes, not before other people. Thank you, Mordecai. Yes. What about the sins against other people? You have to go and deal with them. Yes, you do. This literally, this is dealing with sins that we've done towards God. How, where does this say that, Aaron? Show me. It's verse 30. On, but what about the sins you've got to deal with somebody else? And what you see in the New Testament is exactly this theology. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, when you're before the altar, I'm before the Lord. I'm worshiping the Lord. I'm about to give him my gift. And Jesus says, if you remember that you've got a problem with another brother, what are you supposed to do? Go right away. Yeah. Yes, go deal it with him. Go talk to a human. Go make sure that, that you, your relationship with him is right before coming. You can't just say to God, Lord, please help me and so and so, and that's it. And God's like, no, go, you go deal with him. Go deal with him now. In fact, when that's why the, 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 the confessions, not confessions, the idea of forgiveness is linked to other people. Jesus says in John chapter 20 or 19, I think, if you forgive the sins of others, they are forgiven. But if you don't forgive the sins of others, they are not forgiven. Well, hang on. I thought God did the forgiveness. Lord's Prayer. Forgive me, Father, as I forgive others. So you can't, you can't do the theology, which is, which is what is being discussed here. You can't do the theology of just saying, Jesus will forgive me. And it's got nothing to do with me and everybody else. That is not, and that is, the, so, so the, the theology of the Torah is, flows all the way through into the New Testament where Jesus is saying, yes, my blood does forgive you. Oh, by the way, you need to make sure your relationships with each other are right. I'll help you. You've got my spirit. But don't think that you can run around and hate your brother and expect my forgiveness. That doesn't work that way. And so it's and so what you see here is in Leviticus is also that same wrestling with the grace and mercy of the Lord. But anyway, that's for that's for verse thirty. We will, based on the time, we're going to handle that next week. So Sharon, you have had a lot of shot at it. So I'll let you have one more comment, but then you are going to have to let other people talk. Okay. Yes. So then just to solve it, like, so you're, you're, we're talking about verse 34. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of Israelites. So what are you saying is the, is the sins? Like this is a once a year thing for all the sins? Like what is the sins here, Marty? What do you mean? Sorry, can you please repeat the question? Sorry. Verse 34, you know, so like I understood that this is when he's introducing all this, right? And so it's. So the atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So what is this? Like, how is this different for everything else? Like, what are the sins? That's the question, Sharon. It's the, it is the question. Is, am I absolved? Am I, do I, what part am I involved in this process when for the large part of the process, most of us are not involved? It's just, it's just a priest offering a sacrifice and, mo and the, the large part of Israel, 99.999% of them, not involved. 
Okay, so very interesting theology. So go, go, go through the practice, which is the Peshat, the literal text that the Lord is teaching, and then go th- and you go through the next levels, which is the the Remez and the Rasha, the, the more more spiritual side, allegory and, and and meaning to get out of it, which is what we're doing, Sharon, and what's what what you're wrestling with, and that's okay. There's a lot of people probably doing it too. So. I'm hoping to go into the into the next couple of verses because I really want to hear what Mordecai, because Mordecai and I chatted about this for quite some time the other day. Verse 6. So Aaron shall offer the bull. Remember, he's got a bull and a ram. Okay, but now we're just talking about a bull. Okay, we, we skip the ram. Ram gone. Ram we burn. Okay, now we take the bull, which is the sin offering. Sin offering in Leviticus is for unintentional sin. And he shall make atonement for himself. Okay, atonement, not forgiveness, atonement, covering is a difference. We've, had, we've discussed it before. For himself and for his household. Also a major theological thing. It's like I'm actually offering for a sin of what my entire household, which you do see in books like Job, where Job offers sacrifices for the, his sins of his sons. And you think, well, hang on. How's that one working? Well, it's interesting. It's here in Leviticus. Okay, It's for the Kohen. The Kohen Gadol, the son of Aaron, uh, and his entire household, which is interesting because we often don't think of household sins, not, not, in, our, not in our current uh, uh, Christian speak. We, we really have taken sin to be very, very individualistic, right? It's just me and Jesus, and we're very happy sitting under a tree. What, what, what the Bible talks about households, the Bible talks about you know, generations, the Bible talks about family groups and community, and it uses words like we, us, ours, uh, which is, which is as, in, as opposed to the I, I, I. So um, we, I think, I think we, we actually we have to humbly get away from this, this persistent uh, individualism, not saying that you and Jesus are not important. You are I'm not saying that God doesn't love you. He does incredibly a lot, and he speaks to you personally, I hope. But we've also got to remember that there is also a place for the us and for community. Now, he takes, in verse 7, he takes two goats. These are these two goats which we, which we um, uh, will, will most likely talk a lot about next week, but two goats. And he casts lots. These are equal goats. They're exactly the same. There's no differentiation between that. Two goats. Brings them before the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tent of witness, actually, in, uh, in Hebrew. Okay. And, and then they cast lots, okay, do a little bit of um, the, uh, the, the, not gambling, but um, a, a, a discernment by the use of a lot. Flipping the coin. Yeah, flip, flip a coin, that's right. Yeah, well, however you want to do it. Yep. But they're exactly the same. We've got to figure out which goat goes to where. One goat goes to the Lord, to yud heh vav to actually Hashem. Okay? And the other... Azazel. What is Azazel? And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell to the Lord, and you'll use it as a sin offering. So it is used for sin. Be great. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel okay, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. Okay, The, the guy that dies for sin, but well, we don't make atonement for him, although he's part of the atonement process which is interesting. Now we have another atonement, and this is to be sent away into the wilderness 
to Azazel. Who is Azazel? So give me some ideas. Who do you think, guys? And then um, Mordecai can finish it off. Who do you think Azazel is? I don't know, but it's interesting that there's a parallelism in verse 8. So it's kind of keeping an eye always on those parallels. I'm not sure exactly why, but um, it's that, that parallelism, one for the Lord and one the other for, for Azazel. Okay, so, the, so what Yvonne is saying is in terms of the way Hebrew writes um, poetry, because it's quite poetic in terms of language and, and rhythm, their names, Echad la Adonai, Echad la Azazel. And so one for one, Adonai Azazel. They're, they're in this reading, they become names of a thing, a person, mm-hmm. okay? which, lead, which leads to the tradition that Azazel is a, a, a person. Okay? Mm-hmm. The other thing, uh, Mari, no, I just, I just threw that out there. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, no, there's, other, there's other traditions. This is just one tradition. There's one tradition. Yeah, there's parallelism on the names, but that's, but another thing that's very interesting when, um, you know, when in, in Matthew, when the two demon possessed men uh, and, and Yeshua healed them, the pigs went into the, inframundo, the, how do we say this? Um, cliff. The, yeah, but, but he threw them into the. Cliff. Yeah, no, no. He went Underworld? Underworld. Thank you. Yeah. you think to run into the water. Yeah, so in a sense, so, and, and we don't hear anything about, like, the, when he healed other people, like, oh, they would go to the temple, they would say, oh, they were, like, happy, they went to talk to people. In this particular pericope, per, per, he only talks about the demons and how they go into the pigs and the pigs go back to where they belong. He throws them back to their, what did you say, Patty, the inframundo, the underworld. And I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many different possibilities on Azazel, but one definite thing is this concept of it's going back to, if it is, for example, could it be a parallelism of a name, a place? Could it be, I mean, then Madi can talk about this, but if it's, you know, oh, this concept of the demon, that it would go back to the place where it belongs and it would go back to the infraworld, into the desert, into this, you know. But there is a tradition that stands with what you say, correct? And there's also different traditions and different point of view. In Judaism, we don't have one, you know, point of view. Right. It's not Greek. It's not black or white. Exactly. There's some gray. Yeah, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it creates a lot of balagans. <laughs> uh, so what, what you got, Mordecai? What's, um, uh, what, what's some of the other thoughts on Azaza? Well, here's the thing. As Yvonne says, it looks like a person. Some medieval Jewish sages said that it should be a person. And some some referred it to Samuel, who wrestled with Yaakov Avinu, with Jacob. Okay, does everyone know what Mordecai just said? Yeah, because the, the, there is a tradition. Um, it, it, is it Middle Ages or is it in the Talmud? Yeah, yeah it's in the Middle Ages, but 90, 90% of the Jewish sages and the Talmud sages agree on that it is a high cliff in the desert because in verse 22, it refers to as Eretz, Gezera, uninhabited land. So you send it to a special place in yeah. verse 22 if you look at it. So it's like a place, but as Yvonne says, like you send it, the God, like your sins, to some, uh, like the, the source of them. Here, here, let's hear what Rambam says. It says that this ritual of, uh, of the scapegoat inspires the Jewish people to repent for it symbolizes to everyone that people can free themselves from the burden of the past 
and remove them as far as possible. Um, yeah, they're like, but here's the thing. By sending this goat to Azazel, they are not making Azazel a god. So we have to be careful because the Kohen Gadol did not see the sending of this scapegoat as honoring Azazel as a deity. So it's, it's a place that it sends to basically to the Bamit Bar to an unhibited un, place. Yeah, yeah, a specific place. Which, you know, but some people, a small group of Jewish people, thought and still think that it's a kind of a, a deity. It's not God, it's not equal to God, but it's like a demon that we sent the sin, which basically came from the demon, and we send it back to him. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't make sense. But this area, especially in verse 22, it makes more sense that they send it to Azazel, a specific place in the desert. But what's the, uh, the meaning of it? That it symbolizes that we can get rid of our sins. And what did replace this Azazel thing? It's the kaparot that replaced it. Now we do it with the chicken, not with the scapegoat. But it's interesting that this scapegoat is also in the Muslim culture. Yeah, in Turkey, Turkish people use it, scapegoat, but in, in their own language, they say, Gunah Kichisi. So once I ask her, how did you know about it? They say, it's a tradition here. Maybe they got it from their Christian friends, Armenians, maybe, Syriac community, but they have it in this culture too, a scapegoat. Interesting. It's the actual, we, the word scapegoat, I mean, isn't there in the text per se. It's a, it's a midrash on the word Azazel, right? So, so um, what, one, um, one tradition which from the medieval sages, which is where they think it's a person or an angel, actually comes a lot before then um, from the book of Enoch, okay? And uh, the sort of idea that these fallen angels uh, came down and a variety of names are given, including this word Samael, which appears in the, in the, in the Talmud. Um, but Azazel, one potential meaning, and I'm not saying it's a very good one, but it's a potential one, is uh, the word az or oz yeah. for goat. And then um, uh, azel uh, from lazuz, to move, which literally means the goat that moved. Because it's alive. Right. It's alive. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a, a fancy way, and it's, it's possible. However, in Hebrew, Usually, if you ever see the word L on anything, it usually is in reference to God. God, in which case, Az would be strength, strong. Yeah. Aza, right? And so Azael would be the strength of God. So it's a, I, I, I did see a couple of commentaries where they tried to say this is the reason why it's called the scapegoat, Oz for goat and Zuz for moving. And, and I understand why they say it that way. I think it's a little poor. I think the more traditional way would say the word Azazel is the strength of God. And then, and then you get the two traditions of is it a person or is it a place? And, 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 and all the discussions and the theology that go around with it and some of it being reflected in different cultures, which the Muslims have even picked up on, we've discovered. Yeah. But here's the thing. When Moshe said these things to Aaron, Aaron didn't say, oh, who the heck is Azazel? So they knew what or where Azazel was. So that's the later problem. When we read the text, so we have to deal with it. 
what what's azazel why how when where you know all these questions come to our minds but at that time seeing the text around the high priest doesn't ask a question who Correct. or where azazel is yeah yep yep very interesting um either way it's a, a wilderness area it's not near the people so it is remote or removed from the people so that's a given and it leads to a Jewish tradition that the wilderness is the place of demons, right? It's, uh, and so when Jesus goes into the desert, who, of course, is he going to meet? Going to, yeah. Satan. He's going to meet Satan. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting tradition. But there's a bunch of hands raised. We'll, we'll do, deal with them and then see where we go. Um, who is C? Um, let me just introduce C briefly. C is one of the people I, I invited. Okay. C is a pastor. He's based in South Africa. He's a Nigerian, but actually, but he's based in South Africa. He's a friend. So um, he couldn't join us last week, so he's joining us this week. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Nice to see you, buddy. Um, you've got a hand raised, so you got a comment or something you'd like to share? Yes, Pastor C, go ahead with your, with your question or your comment. Okay. Uh, we, we can come back to you, C. Don't worry, Master C, if, if you're there. Uh, Brandon, you're next. Yeah, um, I know I'm skipping a little bit ahead, but in verse 21, yeah, it says, um, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And I find that, I found that interesting. Maybe someone can elaborate on that, um, that part where it says, uh, by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Um, is that speaking of Aaron or is that somebody else? And what does that mean in the sense of uh, the man of readiness? That's, um, that's a really good question. The actual, the actual Hebrew just says, Biyad ish iti. So it, it doesn't it doesn't say Moshe. It's definitely not Moses. It's just by the hand of a man. Yeah, a timely man who had been prepared for this day. Yeah. Kohen probably. Yeah, because um et et is um is an is a is a very old biblical Hebrew word, milatanachi, for time. Yeah. A timely man. A timely man, okay. Um or, or a man of the time, a man of the hour, or, or something like that. But it's it's got to do with with time. It's a man that rises up to the occasion, in a sense. Or yep. would that be right? Yep. Could be a, a man appointed for that time, a man yep. trained for that time, a man prepared for that time, um, the man of the hour, the, the guy who was brave enough to do it. Um, I mean, think about it. You just put all the sins of the entire community onto this one goat and you've turned around and says, okay, who wants to touch it? And I can just imagine everybody's going, uh, not me. No, I'm good, thanks. I'm going to stay right here. I'm with you, Moshe. I'm staying here, buddy. Um, we're not, we're not, it's, it's, a, it's a brave man. <laughs> a, a, probably an individual priest at the service. Yeah. yeah, it seems like it's a huge task that he has to do here to send it away. I mean, to make sure that this thing actually goes away and not returns or something like that you know he's got to push it out far away <laughs> yeah because if it comes back it's 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 but the law of the of the young people because you can't see it come back <laughs> the scene was must be taken away 
All right. I think I think um, C is ready to speak now. Okay. Yeah, C, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Yes, I would like to use the word of Aaron here. Uh, he said, uh, the goat is sent to Azazel. Now, my question is, when the goat is sent uh, to Azazel, the white ribbon uh, at the temple turns to red. Uh, red to white. Okay, red to white. Okay, during the time of Kaifa, uh, was that the case as the high priest? It becomes a later tradition, yes, and it's recorded in the Talmud that um, that you would tie a cord over the uh, the, the goat, and um, you would know whether the sacrifice had been um, accepted or not because the red had turned white. And it is recorded that that following um, that uh, one generation, forty years prior to the temple destruction of the temple, sometimes the red would turn white. Sometimes it wouldn't, which is very interesting because this would be after the um, resurrection so, uh, and before the destruction. So it's an interesting, interesting tradition. The actual tradition isn't, doesn't occur here yet, but, um, but uh, uh, it, it comes up in the, uh, definitely in the, in the Second Temple period. Cool. All right. Um, Andrew from South Africa. And then Yvonne from Brazil. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't remember Rabbi Sachs's teaching on the two, the reason for two goats. I remember vaguely, uh, and it's not about Azazel either. Uh, but the Judeo-Christian faith is largely a faith based on guilt and how we dealt with deal with guilt. And Rabbi Sachs suggests that the one goat is to deal with guilt, but the other one is to deal with shame. Uh, so we. We know how to deal with guilt generally, but we don't deal as well with shame. And at the time of Yom Kippur, we send out, we put the shame of the community on this goat and we send it off into the wilderness. Um, and I think it ties in again to the, uh, the leprosy theme that Sarat um, and the, the lepers outside of the camp and, and, and to deal with his shame and he can come back into the camp once his, once his shame has been dealt with. So it was just the... An idea for the two goats, really. Yeah, because what 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 Rabbi Sachs is dealing with, along with lots of um, Jewish commentators, but it's well, he he uses he uses he's very erudite, is our uh, Lord Sachs, is um, the, there are two goats, and both are for sin. One is for a sin offering, and one is for a live sin carrying. And so he wrestles with it by saying, "There's there's." there's we're looking at two different types of sins, the guilt and the shame. So it's quite a nice little erudite way of trying to wrestle with this with this uh, idea. Now, of course, you know you don't have to agree with him per se, but it is a, an expression of both goats are for sin. So, which aspects are we dealing with, and why is one kept alive and one and one not? Uh, and he's right; he he doesn't deal with um, Azazel. That's he's he's dealing more with this idea of. Um, uh, two goats for sin, which is an inter interesting thought. Yvonne from Brazil. Yeah, this just to add on to the comments of the two goats. Um, he the, the first one, he shall make atonement for the holy place. So it's interesting because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and their transgressions and their sins. But it's interesting that he makes atonement. He is the cleansing of the inner sanctum, the whole. And the other one then, of course, gets taken away for sin and it's carried away off. But 
it's interesting that it's the, you know it's the atonement for not for the pe- you know it's 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 for the holy place because of the people. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And then uh, in in verse ten, it's like the Lord make atonement over it uh, to present to Azazel, whoever, whatever place this might be, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Okay, we'll call it quits there because we got up to Azazel. Next week, we will wrestle with a bit more of what you've been wrestling with, Sharon, which is when we go through this ceremony, the the verse 30 is, you will be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And we can wrestle with some of the theology that's, that's put in with that. Okay. So, all right. So I'll do some research on Septuagint and figure out what Septuagint and the book of Hebrews, which is quoting Septuagint usually, uh, uh, has to say about the uh, kapawa, the, um, what we translate as mercy seat, or some more modern translations now say atonement covering. And what I find interesting is as you go through the translation history, more and more translations are coming up by saying, look, let's just call it Azazel. We don't really know who he is or what he is or a place. We'll just leave it. This is what the Hebrew says. And um, which I find um, uh, good, actually, quite quite lots of intellectual honesty, is, um, just to, to translate the Hebrew as it as it is written. Okay, brothers and sisters, thanks for wrestling the text with me. Blessings to to you all. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.